Well, good evening. Um, my name is Michael Scott, as Frankie uh, said, and uh, I've been blessed to be able to teach a Bible discovery class at 905 every Sunday uh, in that uh, furthest room over all the way at the end of the hall. Um, tonight we're doing Romans 11 is my understanding of where we're at, and uh, I'm excited about it because there are some more tricky verses in there, kind of like... Uh, Pastor Lynn had brought you all the way up through, or every all of us, all the way up through nine, which he said, understanding the first part is very important to understanding nine, ten, and eleven, I think. And uh, so we're going to get uh, into that tonight. Uh, before uh, we do, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear God, we just thank you for your word, for allowing us the time to come together, to fellowship with one another. I just ask as we open your word that your truth comes out, that your Holy Spirit does the teaching, that it's not me that I don't get in the way of what you have to say. Lord, as we do open up Romans 11 tonight, I just let uh, ask that you open our, our eyes, that we see Jesus in these verses, open our ears, that we hear what you have to say, and, and help us apply it to our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, Romans 11 is is kind of talking about, well, a lot about, Paul finally gets in and and starts talking about the future of Israel. And in Romans 9, we saw the kind of Israel's past, and then we saw them in the present in Romans 10, and then we go in to uh, Romans 11. And I thought I'd look at this because I I didn't get to see, that was the only... only, Lesson in Romans was last week I didn't get to see. So I, I don't know how he got through all, all of 10 or what he had to say about 10, what, what Greg said when he was up here. But there's a lot of Old Testament scripture in actually all three of these, in 9, 10, and 11. I thought, let's just pull up and look at, I'll put some of them on the screen, some of the verses that, uh, that Paul drew from the Old Testament to prove his point in Romans 10. This is one of them. Starting in, uh, uh, it actually came out of Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 6 through 8. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. He said, now that I am commanding you today, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and to proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart that you may obey it. Then he goes on and he quotes from Isaiah later on. Isaiah 26, 16, he said, So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in it will never be dismayed. He goes on and quotes some more from from Joel, uh, chapter 2, verse 32. He says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And then Isaiah again, 52, 7, he says, How beautiful are the mountains. Are on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. A couple more he uses right before he ends. And it says, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people, and I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. And then finally, out of Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, he quotes this. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in the way in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A couple things I really noticed out of that, and maybe maybe you did too. There are so many people that say, "Oh well," and I, I, I've heard it. I've heard people talk about the Lord, and they say, "Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm a you know I, I read the New Testament. I'm that." Look at all the verses he Paul pulls from the Old Testament to prove who Jesus is, and doesn't it ring new? 
It's still new every morning. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But at the very end, it says that he left his, his hands over it. The, the rest of today, this is out of the NIV. I think Pastor Lynn uses the NIV in here. I happen to read from the New King James. Um, it's a little bit more literal translation, so I'm going to switch it up on you as we go through. I'll put the verses up um, for uh, what we're reading for those of you who maybe don't like to read a different version. But if you have something, you go, oh, that says something a little different, please raise your hand and, and, and we'll get to that. As well, So we have Romans 10, which really is just a man-made chapter separation, but we have Paul saying that the Lord his le- has his hands out. His Lord's hands are out to, to all. And it says all day long in the, in the New King James, it says all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You know, I think uh, that can be any of us on any given day. Um, probably me every day, but, uh, that the, and to know that the Lord is holding out his hand saying, Hey, just, just stop looking at the world and the, and the mess that's going on around you and, and the hole you've dug and look back at me. My hands are out for you. I'm right here. I always picture Peter as he, as he was walking on the water to meet Jesus, who was walking on the water towards him. He, he comes out and then he notices the waves and he falls down into the, to, into the sea and because he started paying attention to what was going on, the, the waves. And instantly, as he looks back up to Christ, to Jesus, he's standing there with his hands there. I think God's always like that for us, always ready to help us out of our situation. And so as, as chapter 10 closed, I think, I think we see God saying this whole time, throughout all generations, throughout all dispensations, which is just periods of time in which uh, God was working among men and women, I've, I've had my hands out to you. They're, they're there for you. And so it picks up then from there with Romans 11, 1. He says this, I say then, has God always, uh, has God cast away his people? He answers his own question. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite and of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of, ben, of, the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm a, a, the Jew of Jews. I've been been well trained. I've been well instructed. I am of the Sanhedrin, one of the top 40 scholarly Jews in the land. I am a Jew. And yet I know that this new thing has happened. This thing has happened where I've even been pulling from, from all those verses that were in front of my eyes all this time and couldn't see Jesus. When Jesus revealed himself to me and I accepted him for he was, my eyes were opened. And I started to see these scriptures come alive to me. And so I know that they're real and alive, but he hasn't forgotten about the Jew or he would have forgotten about me. So he was, his, he was the best example, I think, of that very, very same thing. And then in verse 2 and 3, it says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know the scripture, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I am alone left and they seek my life. They seek my life too. He's saying, Hey, this is, this is going on. And, and Elijah is his example of of the situation. You know, I'm sure most all of you know the story of Elijah. This particular verse comes in a, in a place that is after Elijah calls out 450 prophets of Baal, which was a false god that, that Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, that Ahab was the king at the time, Jezebel his wife, and, and the people of Israel had started to worship. There was another one too. There was another one, Astaroth. There were 400 of theirs, but they didn't come to the challenge. Elijah goes up and goes to the king, Ahab, and challenges. Says, bring all the prophets, the 450 from, from um, Baal and the 400 from Astaroth, and bring them on out and I'll challenge them. Do you know the story? And he stands up on Mount Carmel and he, he calls them out and says, I'll have an altar here and you have an altar there. And I'll tell you what, whoever brings fire, whoever's God bring." Whatever God brings fire down from heaven, that's the one. That's, that's going to be the one. That's, that's the right God. So they go through their day from morning to afternoon. They're doing all their rituals. They have their altar there. They have their, their, their calf there. And they're, they're waiting on, on their God. And, and Elijah starts to go, okay, well, maybe you're just not shouting loud enough. 
Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe, maybe he's out on an errand. Maybe he's doing something else. So, so try maybe a little louder. Maybe he'll hear you. And they go through their ritual and they start cutting themselves and bleeding because that was their custom. And they go through all of this just to try to, to get their God to answer. In the end, no answer. It came time for the evening sacrifice. So it was Elijah's turn. And he rebuilds the temple. There was, an, there was a temple there. He takes 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he has the le- wood laid on it. And he takes his, his animal, that sacrifice, and he lays it on there. And then he asks for the huge buckets of water and says, pour it over this. And he does it again and again. So now this thing is just flooded with water. And he prays to the Lord and the Lord sends fire down from heaven, takes the sacrifice, burns the sticks, burns the rocks. The rocks are vaporized, the dust, right into the dust. Nothing is left. It was apparent to Israel at that time that their eyes had been on the wrong God. They had started worshiping a false God. So that's the story that he tells, that he gets to this point. Goes on, hadn't rained for a long time. Isaiah, uh, I mean, um, um, Elijah ends up uh, praying for for it to rain because the Lord God had said it was going to rain again. He goes on into town, and of all people, Ahab's wife Jezebel says, "I'm going to do to you what you did to those those uh, uh, prophets of mine, prophets of Baal." They ended up killing them all. So, so he gets worried and he runs away. And this is what he says. That's where that's where we come up to this point. Where he says that. It goes on in, in verse 4. It kind of continues this thought. So that you have the scene of what's been going on. In verse 4 here of Romans 11. It says. But what does the divine response say to him? Because he's saying. I'm alone left. I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one left. I feel defeated. Now even after you did this great miracle. I'm running from the king. I'm running from them. Because I'm afraid for my life. And the answer is. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There were 7,000 guys. He thought he was the only guy left. And this is Paul's point. This is what Paul's trying to get across. He says, no, this is, you're not even aware of the works that I'm doing in men and women's hearts. And that's it. Sometimes I think we think that maybe we have the answer to the question or we're the only ones following God or it's so difficult because our workplace maybe isn't inviting to that, uh, to, to Jesus being mentioned. And so you feel like, oh man, I, I'm the only guy here in my workplace. Who knows? Who knows who else in your workplace God is working on? But in this particular case, he's saying there were those Israelites that God was working in that you my prophet don't know about. I haven't let you know, but I'm preparing them. They know. They're ones who haven't bowed the knee. They haven't made the choices that led them down the road to a hardened heart. That led them down the road to a place that was far from me instead of near to me. And I haven't forgotten them, just like I haven't forgotten you. And Paul would say, just like he didn't forget me when I was killing Christians. When I was out there doing the opposite of what I should have been doing. He was still calling to me. His hands were still outstretched and he was reaching for me. So that particular verse comes from first Kings chapter 19. If you want to go there, you can. It's, it's, um, right after, uh, Samuel, we get into Kings, but I'll read you a couple of them. If you don't want to turn there, it's 19. I'm going to read from verse 11 through 13. And this is what happened. This is This is what happened to lead up to that moment where he heard God tell him that there were 7,000. The Lord told him after he ran away, went into the wilderness, he stayed for 40 days. He was hiding in a cave and the Lord said, go out on this mountain. And this is what he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, his clothing, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
See, Elijah had been running even after a great victory, after seeing the mighty hand of God work right in front of everybody else and showing all other gods insignificant. He he ran. He, fear still still got into him. You would think, you know, after you see that, it wouldn't. But the Jews were the same way in the wilderness as Paul's going to go on and talk about. It was the same kind of thing. He said, what are you doing for here? He goes on, if you read the verses, he goes on and tells them, I've got a plan for you. I've got another prophet, Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha that you're going to anoint. I've got a new king for, for Judah and I have a new king for Israel. I want you to go out and anoint them. There's work to be done is what he tells them. So then I would ask you, after all that, this is the story. This is the situation. This is what would come to an Israelite's mind. This was his answer to what question? Anybody remember from verse one? It says, has God cast away his people? Has God cast away Israel? Those people, the ones who we first started with. He's going to go through and explain that this is really dealing with Israel and he's dealing with a people that he had set apart for himself. And it is through that, that line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we find our own blessings ourselves. And this is what he's going to build on. So the question was, has God cast away his people? And his answer was, look at Elijah. Look at what happened. Even when I was doing a mighty work, he still ran. Did I cast him away? No. I told him there's more to be done. Let's go. Let's get back into it again and, and keep going. So I thought that was was very interesting that he did that. Going on to, to Romans 5 then, it says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. See, you think because you are being persecuted by the Jews that maybe the message isn't for the Jews anymore. Some of you might be thinking that. Some of you here in Rome might be thinking that. I'm telling you that that's not true. Because some of the Romans probably were thinking that. Thinking, oh, new, new gospel, look at them persecuting you, they can't be part of it. And so he, he continues on, you know, there's, there's always going to be a remnant in Israel. Today, who's the remnant today? Who are the Jewish people that we would call the remnant? The Messianic Jews. Any Jew that would accept Christ, just like us, right? Who's the remnant of us or of, of, of a Gentile nation? Anyone who would accept Jesus Christ. Are there microphone runners out there tonight in case? Okay, good. So if we have hands up, please go, go hit them. Um, and uh, so, so it was, it was those those Jewish Christians, the ones who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah, the one they had been looking for all along. Remember John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, when he saw Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. For them, it should have been lightning to their ears. The Lamb of God, we've been waiting for the Lamb of God. And so, but many of them didn't receive that. And for that, is they, they ran into this situation. They ran into this situation. But God has not cast them aside. He's still there with the outstretched hand, is what Paul has been saying. So then it says, in verse 6, it says, And by if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But as of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, it is... Work is no longer work. So what does he mean by that? Does anybody have any thoughts? If it's by grace, then it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So if we start... Oh, there's, there's a hand. Somebody? Great. Maybe? Said it, yeah, I hear you. Uh, you know, grace is something not earned. Yes. There's nothing they can do. It, exactly. There's nothing they can do. Not earned. Perfect. Um, it's a gift, isn't it? It's a gift that, that you would receive. If you were to receive a gift and then somebody said, well, now you owe me all this work, then it really wasn't a gift, was it? Now you have to do this. It's not something they earned to get it. The gift came without you doing anything. Well, in this case, we received Jesus Christ and now as his children, he places gifts on us and, and we work. Well, the gift was was indeed even his sacrifice, right? And we accepted that gift. And as we accept that gift, so he's saying, he's saying, if you think you can work your way to my grace, you can't. Because work is work and grace is grace. And so that's, that's 
in a nutshell, pretty much what he's saying. A gift cannot be earned. Exactly what you said. It's, it's free. It can't be bought. Which is a wonderful place to be, I think, as Christians. As we sit here and, and wait in that. It goes on to verse 7 and says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded? Blinded. I, I know Pastor Lynn was, was talking about this, this, this blindness and stuff. Who's, who's they that were blinded, and why were they blinded? Were they blinded because God had said, I'm blinding you? I know you went through it because I listened to them all, but... Uh, <laughs> Anybody have anything? Blinded. Who's, how do we get blinded? How, how about that? It's probably a better question. How, how do we get become blinded? Anybody? I think I remember him saying when your heart turns away from, 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 from the Lord or when you separate. Is that what he was saying? Right. So you're saying, you're saying um, when we separate, when we turn away from God, then we're blinded. So the action of you turning caused your blindness not God blinding you. Is that what you th- you're saying? Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that you turned, you failed. You did not live up to what I've asked you to do. You haven't done anything. As a matter of fact, you've turned your back on me. You did not recognize me and you continue to do so even though I'm right here in front of you. Even though I'm here with my hands out. Even though the word, you've had the word the whole time. You have the Old Testament, just as, as Paul's been quoting. You have that to show you who I am, and you keep turning, being disobedient to my word, and you become blinded because of that. So it says, it says there, they, they haven't obtained what they seek. The elect have obtained it. The rest were blinded, not because God blinded them, but because they chose not to seek him, not to find out the truth. You know, I guess we're all investigators in that way a little bit. You know, back in Romans 10, verse 21, Paul had said this. Well, that that very same thing. All day long I stretch out my hands to you. So once again, I think that we see in this that the blinding can't be God's fault. Because all day long he stretched out his hands to you. Then in verse 8, it says this. Just as it is written... God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Does anybody know what stupor means? It may say something different in your Bible. I bet it does because I think it says sleep or asleep in somebody's. Anybody have anything different? Can yell it out if you want. A spirit of what? Anybody? No? What? Slumber. slumber. A slumber. So the King, King James, or New King James, says a spirit of, of stupor. Some of your Bibles probably say uh, uh, a spirit of slumber. You know, I looked that up in the Greek. And in the Greek, it says a prickling sensation. Like when your arm falls asleep. I found that kind of interesting. Because what do you do when you wake up and your arm's asleep? You've been laying on it, Right? And so you start worrying about that arm. Get that going again, you know. So you try to get that out. And your concentration, your, your what you start thinking about is that even more than, than maybe what might, it, might, what might have caused that. And so I think it's interesting that he's given them a spirit of stupor. They are blind because of something they're doing. Their body is fully rested upon their arm, arm and therefore they, their arm goes to sleep. Their eyes are closed and therefore they do not see. See, if I walk around turning my head away from the truth as I go, that is my spirit of stupor. That is my spirit of slumber because I'm choosing not to see something that maybe is right in front of me. Certainly is right in front of me because many saw Jesus and yet did not believe. The miracles he was doing, all of the things that had happened in that day, even rising from the dead. And still those there were those who did not believe they had purposely close their eyes to the truth. That would be that spirit of slumber. That would be something that they didn't do. You know, um, that quote comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'm going to start above it because I think it's kind of interesting. It'll, It'll set the scene for where this came from. 
in the, in the word. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 6. It says this. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor do you drink wine or similar drink that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. So that verse comes from a time when Moses was looking at the Israelites saying, listen, I've been with you 40 years. God's been doing miracles every day in your life. He's been feeding you manna from heaven. He's brought around this rock that brings forth water continually so you never thirst. He, 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 he doesn't allow your, your clothing to wear out for 40 years. Your clothes haven't worn out. And yet you are still blind. So at this point, they're blind. It, though it's, it, it implies that, that the Lord has not given you a heart to see. He was there for them to see, but they had chosen not to see. They had slept. They had slumbered. They had prickling in their arms and it was right there at their fingertips. They could feel it, but they couldn't see it. They would, they would blame God and ask him for more than what they had. They'd say, oh, we need more. We need more. So it's interesting that he's using that, I think, because Moses said it so well. And I think that's exactly why Paul says it here. Moses said exactly the same thing to the Israelites then. The same thing is going on today for those who do not see Jesus Christ for who he is. In verse 9 it says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their backs always. It comes from a psalm, and it's a prophetic psalm. It's Psalm 69, 21 through 23, if you're taking notes. This is how it starts, and you'll recognize uh, what it says. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Did that not happen to Jesus on the cross? Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see. And this is what it says in the Hebrew. And make their loins shake continually. Both of these statements here, that their back, uh, bow their backs always, or that their, that they, their loins may shake continually is that of an old man. It's the curse of them that or for them that aren't recognizing who God is. And so he's saying they're old and they're bent over and, and let that be to them for not recognizing all of their days. Notice it's at the end, if you will, of a man or woman's life. And so at the end of their life, they're becoming older and brittle and they're still not seeing. So it's given over to that position because because they didn't see. What's really interesting, I think, here is that he mentions a table. Let their table. A table in the Old Testament has a reference to feasting, to feasts. The Jews had many feasts. I'm going to show you some of them uh, here right now. These feasts should have pointed the Israelites to the Messiah. They should have been looking for their Passover lamb, which represents Jesus' death. To then they had a feast of unleavened bread, which represented his burial. And then they had a feast of first fruits, the first fruits, the, the first from their crops and the resurrection. And then there was 50 days later a feast of Pentecost. That, uh, and that is when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. These things were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. There are three more feasts, fall feasts. The first ones are spring feasts. The next ones are fall feasts. Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. And I believe those are going to be fulfilled. Here's another slide here. In, in the future, in Jesus, with Jesus' second coming. 
So here I put some verses up there. If you, you want to write them down, feel free to write them down and, and look at them. But it's interesting. Those very feasts should have pointed them to Jesus. But instead, they looked at the feast itself and said, wow, here's our feast. We have to have our feast. Let's focus on the feast. It was the same kind of thing as the Pharisees said to Jesus when he was walking among them. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Don't you know this is a day that the law has set apart for us to do no work? And yet you are healing. He says, I only go to do what I've seen my father do. God has already done this. I'm just walking with God because I am God. See, they didn't put that all together. They didn't, they didn't see that for what it was. And so, so, so this moment here with these feasts and, 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 and all of this that, that happens, you know, second Corinthians chapter three, verses 14 through 16, Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, but in their, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken out of the way. So how then do they start to see these things? When is it that they start to figure out, oh, the Passover Supper points to the Messiah, which is Jesus fulfilled those things. He fulfilled the Messiah. He fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits. He fulfilled the, the, the day of Pentecost when the, when, the, when the Holy Spirit came down on a people. That means he's going to fulfill more and they're coming later. And so this is it. And this points to it. There is a veil. What is it that lifts a veil? What, what did it just say from Corinthians? Did anybody catch that? Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus Christ is the one that removes that veil. So this is what he's talking about when, when he says that. When, he, when, when he's talking about this table being set, the table should have given them more than the food that was on it. When we focus sometimes so closely at that thing that is right in front of us and don't see the big picture, you know, we get, we get uh, tunnel vision and we start to notice and we don't see everything that's around us. What do they say? You're not seeing the forest through the trees. Because we're looking at that one thing and, and we don't figure out that there's a big picture going on. That's exactly what Paul is saying here to them. The Jewish people had the feast. The feast told them a story. The story points to Jesus they should know. And when they don't and they don't recognize it, then they're given over to, if you will, old age. That blindness becomes fully full on them instead of, in part, it becomes in whole. So then in verse 11, it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So he's saying to them there, he's saying, have they stumbled in such a way that they won't rise again? Have they fallen that they can't get up? And the answer is no, certainly not. Again, he answers his own question. No, they haven't fallen in that way. Through their fall, it says, though, that they provoke them to jealousy. Who's them? Yeah. So who's provoking them then? So the Jews are, are being provoked into jealousy by... Yes. By the Gentiles? But by the Lord, sure, certainly that would be that would be good. The Lord is provoking them, but but he's doing it through opening the door. Right. Who do you open the door to? Gentiles to all man. Right. So it is because that he's opened the door to everyone that they should be going, hold it, hold it, hold it. That was a special place for us, for it was promised to Abraham and my forefather was Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, who became known as Israel. And it went through, and this is my, this is for me. The Lord gave me these blessings. He gave me these promises. And now it starts to get interesting as we continue to move forward here, as he starts to, to really talk about some of the, uh, some of the things, I guess, maybe that they are, are missing out on. 
In Zechariah 12.10, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So that means they, the Jewish people, will look upon him who they pierced. Who did they pierce? Jesus. There is a future day in which they will come to know him and recognize him as a Messiah. If not now, as part of the remnant, even we as Gentiles are the remnant. If we weren't the remnant, there there wouldn't be churches big enough to hold all the people that would come to hear the word. Because every, all the Gentiles would take advantage of that and they would come in, they want to know. But there's a remnant, a remnant of Gentiles, those who have, who have, who've come to believe. And there are those remnants of Jews who have come to believe today and there will be in the future, even after the rapture of the church. And we'll get into that here in a second. So now in verse 12, it says, now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, because they stumbled and didn't recognize Jesus when he came to them the first time, he opened the door that all men would come to them. And I believe, as you read the Old Testament, all men could have come to him in the Old Testament too. It was there for them. It was there for them should they receive. Remember, the Jews were even told they could bring one in that would follow their ways. And all their ways should have been pointing to Jesus, to the coming of the Messiah. That's what the sacrificial lamb was all about. So there is a time coming. Another verse that talks about that is uh, Micah. Micah is one of the, the, they call it the lesser prophets. It's in the end of the Old Testament. And Micah chapter four, verse four through seven says this. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people Walk each in the name of God, but each, but, but we will walk in, in the name of the Lord, our God forever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. You know, Daniel talks about when this time will be. Daniel chapter 9, many of you have probably studied it. If not, it's very interesting. There's a prophecy given to him about 70 weeks of years. A week of days is seven days. A week of years is seven years. 70 weeks of years would be 490 years. There is a book, if you're interested, by Sir Walter Anderson that goes through the math using uh, the ancient uh, and all old Jewish calendar, or all old calendars even, were 360-day years, and goes through and does the math, and it says from the beginning of the word uh, of, of uh, to, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be, will be 69 weeks of years. So they go back and they, they do, you do the math and, it, and you find out in the book of Nehemiah when that decree was made out and you add the days and the day that it comes out to, it's 173,880 days. And 173,880 days from that day, that when that came up, Jesus was riding down lowly on a donkey and they were shouting out, Hosea in the highest. Save us. The only time Jesus ever came into Jerusalem announced to the day. And then it says in that same prophecy from Daniel chapter nine, and then he will be cut off. Jesus died. It was cut off. And there are seven years. I told you there was 490 weeks of years. There is one week of years remaining, which is seven years, which is exactly the time period left in the book of Revelation that we can read all about and find out exactly what happens during that time. That time period is for the Jews to recognize their Messiah, to look upon him whom they pierced. The church is gone. So this is after the rapture. This is 
after the tribulation, at the end of that, when they finally recognize who Jesus is, and he comes again for the second time and comes on earth, and a millennial reign begins. A thousand year reign is what the word tells us. It's an exciting moment going on then. So this is all happening in all these verses from Zechariah and Micah and all these Old Testament verses telling about a time in which they will live with the Messiah living in their midst. They didn't see him and recognize him the first time. They will recognize him the second time when he comes. And then after, after seeing all that and how much more their fullness, they will fully be in to Jesus at that point. Their blindness will be taken out of their way is what Paul is saying here in verse 12. And then in verse 13, he says, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my, my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. See, he does this to provoke any that were just like him, that are persecuting Christians just like Paul did. He's he's been called into the ministry to the Gentiles. So he says to them very sternly, I'm talking to you Gentiles, I'm letting you know that I long for them to come to know the Lord just like I did. I long for that. A matter of fact, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19, he said this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. He wants to provoke them to jealousy. If that works, that's great. You know, I think a lot of times we get into the rut in churches or in the way we do something. Hey, I told someone about the Lord this way and they responded. Therefore, I'll always tell people about the Lord in the same manner. And when they don't respond, it's their fault. Well, that's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I came at it from different ways. To the weak, I was weak. To the strong, I was strong. To the, to, to the heathen, I was, I was a heathen, though I didn't disobey the law. But I set, them up. I set with them. I explained the word to them. I, I talked to them about it. I was casual. I wasn't, I wasn't condemning. I was all things to all people that I might just say some, that they might want to know more, that the blindness would start to, to, start to lift. And I could just tell somebody Somebody about this hope that I have that's in me, this hope for their lives, the hope that I have that's that's going to give me eternal life. You know, he goes on in verse 15, I'll change it. Verse 15, he says, for if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For those of you who don't know it, I'm not going to read it tonight, but there is a scripture in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's called the dry bones. Have any of you read it or heard of it? The dry bones is talking about the redemption of Israel, that Israel is dead and their bones. And this is what, what, uh, Ezekiel sees and he's recalling and he's seeing these bones and he sees them all come back together again and become a nation again. And a matter of fact, in Ezekiel 37, 11, the Lord says, he, he, he says to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Before the prophecy, be, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from the graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. He is going to do it in such a way when he comes in his second coming that they know it's him. It's undeniable. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That moment is undeniable. He's going to come in a big way. He's going to put their spirit in them and they will know him. And and there's many other verses that, that refer to that. Then in verse 16, Paul's saying, for the first fruit is holy. The lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Anybody know what the first fruit is? Anybody? The first fruit is the beginning of sacrifice. It's the first of the sacrifice. It's kind of like our tithe. Our tithe is we're supposed to take off the top. The first thing that we give to the Lord. The Lord blessed me. This is yours right off the top. And it's the first of the produce that comes. It's the first thing. I'm going to give it to you. And then it says, if the, so for the first fruit is holy. The beginning, the first sacrifice, it's holy because it's for the Lord. The lump The lump is, some of yours may say dough or mass of dough. That's what it is in the Greek. The dough is also holy. This dough is is interesting because, going back to Numbers, Numbers 15, 19 through 21, if you're taking notes, I'll read it fast. It says, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land. So now they're taking of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. So now you've taken all the grain and you're starting getting ready to make make bread. It says you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground, of this dough. And as a heave offering and heave uh, um, as a heave offering on the of the flesh threshing floor. That's just where they thresh the, the wheat. They take it and they make the very first bread and they give it to God. They say, this is, this is for God. The very first of what we have is, is for God. And then, and then the first of your, your dough, it says you shall give to the Lord as a heave offering throughout your generation. So when the Jewish people heard this, if the first fruit is holy, the first sacrifice is holy, the lump, that first, first sacrifice of wheat is also holy. And if the root is, is holy, so are the branches. So the root to them was Abraham. He was the first one spoken to by God to set aside a people. So he says to them, as Abraham's holy, so are each and every one of you who have come from that line, who have been blessed by that line. Just as Abraham I saw as righteous, you also are righteous. And now it gets, I I think it gets interesting. So now he says in verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So some of the branches are broken. He's talking about, in this particular case, some of the Jewish people were broken off of this tree in which the root, which started with the blessing on Abraham and the promises to Abraham were. And you, is you and I, of the wild olive tree, the, the Gentiles, the other nations of the world are now grafted in to these branches with Israel. So we're a partaker of Abraham's promises and the fatness, which is the richness, the blessings that were promised to them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave the Beatitudes. You've heard the Beatitudes. At the end of the Beatitudes, he said this, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its uh, flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before all men that they may see good works and glorify your father in heaven. In John chapter 12, 46, he says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So you and I as Christians would say from those verses from Matthew chapter 5 that that God's warning us if we're salty, be salty. We're made to be salt of the earth. If not, we become worth nothing. If we're a light, don't hide it. Show it because Jesus is the light. These Jewish people who had lost the faith, they had lost who 
God was and what he was doing for them and started focusing on the sacrifices, the first fruits, the table, the the bread offerings. They were sacrificing on those items instead of God who provided them the blessing that had been coming to them. And out of that blessing, they, they easily gave the first of all to them. So we benefit because of the nation of Israel. In verse 19, it gets tricky. And this is where I'm going to have, I think, maybe some questions for you. Or maybe you have some thoughts on it. It says, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Do not be puffed up. Do not be high-minded. That unbelief is the same word as faithlessness. So they had lost their faith. And because they had lost their faith, they were broken off. That sure sounds like maybe we should be worried about losing our salvation, doesn't it? Isn't that a little scary? Doesn't that sound that way? He's talking to Jews that were broken off and you were grafted in. So out of that, we might think, oh no, this is... This is this could be trouble for me, and, and maybe the Jewish people were thinking that themselves. Um, I don't have time to, to read it tonight, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, starting at verse 1 through 12, it's got some interesting things telling us about that we won't fall. But here in verse 21, it says this, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Wow. Once again, sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? So what's he talking about? Is he talking about that we can lose our salvation? Does anybody think that we can lose our salvation based on that verse? Hands, anybody? No, maybe. Ah, Okay. It sure sounds like it, right? I see a couple of hands there. Do you have a question? Yes. Um, I don't really think that... um... That verse doesn't, like, just because it says that they were, um, like, they died off, that doesn't mean exactly that they ever had faith. Like, I think that it might mean that um, their faith wasn't really real, I guess. Well, okay, that, and that very well may tr- be, be true. As, as a whole, as a nation, many of them were probably, as a nation, I think that makes sense. As an individual, if you were part of the tree, it would mean that you probably had some understandings of, of the foundation of that. And it says that you're being fed by the fatness of the tree, right? So they were getting blessed. They were getting, they should have known that. But yes, that's possible that that were true. I don't think that's what, what Paul is saying here. Um, he's been talking to the nation of Israel here about them falling away. Well, let me ask you this. Do you, is it possible? Because we know from Romans 10, 9, you had this last week. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? Says you will be saved. So you're saved. Does that mean you're justified? Do you remember when Pastor Lynn was talking about at the beginning of Romans, he was talking about us coming to know who Christ is. And then from chapter five on, they had accepted Jesus Christ. They were justified. They were just as if they had not sinned because they accepted Jesus Christ, because they believed in their heart. So after you believe, then he said you were talking about a different part of salvation. Does anybody remember what that was? Sanctification, right. So sanctification is the working out of our salvation. As Christians now, we become fruit bearers and we start doing things to gain fruit. So if I am a fruit bearer, is it possible that I too could be broken off or something could be broken off from me? And I think so. When I'm not following God's will for my life, when I'm not doing his things, there's, there's a, there could be a disconnect. There is a parallel to this. If you have your Bibles, um, John chapter 15. Go to John chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chapter 15. 
starting at verse 1. Jesus said this, I am the true vine. So now we're talking to Christians. Here we're talking to the Jews and they recognize the root as Abraham and they see the promises and blessings because of that. Do we have a, oh, five minutes? Okay, we'll try to get through this real quick because this is, this is kind of where we're leading up to. I'm sorry, all the good stuff's right here. Okay, um, here's what Jesus said. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And as the father loved me, I also Loved you, abide in my love. Kind of parallel, isn't it? We have this root, we have branches, we have branches broken off. In this case, we have others grafted in. So is Jesus saying that you can lose your salvation? Do you think there? Can't the Jews be grafted back in too? Absolutely. And that's what he goes on to say. We're not going to have time to get there, but you are exactly right. Later on, he says they can be grafted back in. So it helps answer our question as you continue to go on. Well, I thought they were broken off. So are we talking about them as a whole or just as part of their life? See, if they can be grafted back in, Paul goes on to say that you're going to get into that next week. If they can be grafted back in, then we certainly aren't talking about them losing their salvation and having no hope. We're talking about them losing reward. We're talking about them losing on their walk of sanctification, they're losing. Jesus is saying much the same thing. Because he says, as the Father loved me, I also loved you, abide in my love. He said, I loved you. He didn't say, I love you only when you're good. Right? But he says the same thing. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So when we are abiding in Jesus, only then can we bear fruit. Because we can't do it ourselves. Remember what Paul said earlier. Works is works and grace is grace. So as we are abiding and listening to the Lord, as we come and take our Bibles out and we start to read them and and try to understand more about Jesus, who he is, and we walk that walk, then we can start bearing fruit and our treasure then is in heaven and not on earth. So as we continue to grow and as we continue to learn, Jesus was saying the same thing. When you're abiding in me, my Holy Spirit's working in you. My grace is in you and I'm working and you're growing and you're being fruitful, not because you did anything, but because you're listening to me and I'm doing something. And because you're listening to me and I'm doing something, you will gain treasure in heaven. So we don't have to be in the place where we say, oh, I have to be super Christian. I have to memorize all the scriptures and I have to go out and, 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 and do this and do that and do that. We don't have to do all things. We just have to listen to what God's doing and be there when he does it. And the glory then would go to the God. That's right. Absolutely. The glory goes to the Lord. Because he's doing it. Because it's not us. And when it's of us, then I always worry. And that's what he's saying. If it's of you, you're not abiding in me. That stuff gets broken off and burned up. So your branches, those, those things that you think that are so great, but they're all out of selfish heart, that's not worth anything. It's not going to make it to heaven. But when you abide in me, when you listen to me, he says it's going to make it to heaven. Because I love you that much. He says, as at, once again, in, in, in John fifteen nine, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. See, he loves us. We are his children. 
So that, I think Paul is saying the same thing. You're going to find out that the Jews can get grafted back in. And because they can get grafted back in, they have, they have hope. They're blind in part. He's going to go on to say, blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You will find out that that fullness of the Gentiles ends on the rapture. That's the end of the church period. The focus is now fully on the Jews and all the promises that he's gotten given to them up to this point is coming. That's coming to them. That's something they're going to see. It's going to be more and more evident that God indeed has his hands out to them and he's just waiting on them. Does anybody have any questions before we close? I know I took up most of the time talking. I was trying to hurry and get to this part because it's, it, it's, it's prone to discussion and uh, we used up most of it. But next week you'll get to probably bring that back up again because he's going to be talking about grafting the Jews back in. For the same reason, nobody should be anti-Semitic. For the same reason God is not done with Israel. And the promises that are to Israel aren't now the promises to the church. The promises to Israel are still the promises to Israel. The promises to the church are the promises to the church. We get blessed by the same God for the same reason, our belief. And that's it. And it stops there and we just believe. And there are going to be days that we fall away and we're not very good fruit producers. And there will be days that we don't. Yes. Thank you, Michael. You've done a great job tonight. Um, I just wanted to ask, do you think that the Jews have gotten caught up as Abraham is holy, so are you? Kind of a dilemma, um, thinking that because he was saved, that they're kind of saved. And is that the um, stumbling stone? It's like it's their birthright. You know, right now, and and, and anybody in here uh, uh, have a Jewish background? Many of the Jews today that you hear talking, you'll hear them on news media and that, many of them are not practicing Jews. They're Jews because of their birthright. And that's what they know. They say, I'm a Jew because my father was a Jew, his father, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. And therefore, I have the right, all the rights due to me as a Jew. And yet they don't know their Bibles to know what rights those are or blessings there are. So they're not practicing, so they're blind. Yes. And our situations are in such, at least in my own situation, is I've been bombarded by circumstance after circumstance after circumstance. And then you begin to think, oh, my gosh, you know, what am I doing wrong? Or why are these things happening? And uh, maybe I'm not a Christian because then Satan starts playing these games in your mind to make you question. Yes. And then finally I realized this afternoon is, I'm sorry, is it too far? Okay. Um, I just realized this afternoon is is that if Satan has got his sight on me, that means God has got his sight on me as well. Yeah, he sure does. You know, he loves us. And, and he, I see another hand there real quick. Um, the, 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 you're exactly right. God has got you. He's always there for you. He's always has his hand stretched out. He puts that hedge of protection around us, if you will. Remember that Satan himself had to go to God to ask to affect Job in the Bible. So if you go back and read that, you'll see that in chapter one and chapter two, twice. Was there one more question? Then we'll close. Is that, yeah. Yeah. I, I just had a comment. So, um, I was very, very blessed and I just returned from Israel. So I, I oh, challenge you in the fact that there are not practicing Jews. Um, and my question, I guess, would be for those that are practicing and yes. they're a lot of what they do seems to be very ritualistic yes. as opposed to necessarily following the Bible, still kind of following more of a law. Um, do you believe or are you feeling that in order for them to get to this stuff of grafting, that those practices and pretenses would need to go away? Well, no, not necessarily. Even in the millennial reign, there are some feasts and and sacrifices that are going to happen. They're going to look at it from a different angle. They're going to say, we recognize that you were the lamb and therefore they'll sacrifice the lamb. You know what I mean? To, in, in front of him, if you will, or to him. Um, there is, there is, it is amazing. Some of the really good rabbinical teaching, if you listen to it, it's, that's real good, they are right there. They get to it and you and I as Christians sit there and go, and sit there and go, 
It's right there. It's right there. It's Jesus. It's right there. You're getting all the points. It's Jesus. And they, and they just stop right, sh- right short of that. And it's like, how can they not see it? It's so evident. And that's the same thing. Many of them are doing it just as they're in there in that room, you know, along the wall. And they're, they're in there. There's that library down there. And they're sitting there and they're reading their stuff over and over and their prayers and all that. Real quick story, and, and I'm going to close on this, I promise, and pray. Um, I, was in, I was in Israel once, and I w- was uh, helping out a man in a wheelchair that was in our, our group. And we were down there at the Wailing Wall. And there was a Jewish uh, uh, um, man down there who, was, who was, came up to us and asked if, if, if he wanted to be prayed for, the, the man in the wheelchair. And he said, sure, you can pray for me. And he says, X amount of dollars. Give me money. I looked at him. Boy, that got me. (laughs) That got me. Because it was really evident that, hold it, you're going to take this in front of God, if you will. You're saying, I'm going to pray for you because I, as a Jew, am closer to God. And he'll hear my prayers. Just as in the Wailing Wall, they stick prayers right into that wall. that, that That you'll hear my prayer, you know, or his prayer will mean more. And therefore, you should pay me. Oh, wow. I said to him, you know, you're going to have to answer to God for that someday. And I believe he will have to answer to God for that someday. Pay me so that I can give you a prayer so that maybe you can be better and get out of that wheelchair and walk. That's a dangerous game. So they're, they're close and yet some of them aren't close. They're practicing for self gain. Isn't that it? Isn't that what Jesus said when they dropped their alms in the temple and the, 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 Pharisees and the Sadducees brought big amounts of dollars in there so everybody could hear cling, cling, cling. And then the lady came with her mites. Her little bit of coins. And the Lord said she is given more because she's given out of, she has nothing. And she gave all that she had. And they've given little compared. And they were doing it for show. They were trying to get gain. So yes, they're there. Some of them are really close, really, really close. Some of them are there for selfish gain. Some of them have no idea. But that's it. Let's close. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that, uh, that indeed we are saved. You love us. And you have a place for us. You said that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And we know that to be true, Lord. And we also look forward to what is going on in heaven. That you are preparing a place for us is so awesome. We know in that relationship that we will not be cast away. We may fall short. And we may not be be doing everything that you have for us to do. But we know that your promises are true. And we ask, Lord, I ask, Lord, that, that, that each of us remembers that we will never be cast away by our Lord. That he calls us sons and daughters of the living God. And we accept that and we believe that as the, as the bride of Christ, Lord. We, we just ask and, and thank you as we look forward to the bridegroom's return. Help us to walk each and every day with that in our hearts that we're our heads held high looking for the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in that name that we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for putting up with me tonight. Yeah.